guy Chris Polar, he's mentioned on I think most of your albums in the liner notes as yes. you know you give thanks to him. I know the feeling of having a mentor. I owe my mentor so much, you know, and I yes. have distinct memories of certain moments where something was unlocked through a oh, yeah. piece of advice. So I'm wondering, can you share some of these moments? Well, um, there were many, because first of all, this guy was unusual. He was a Bay Area musician, but in those days, a lot of musicians came from the East Coast and they didn't bring a bass player, maybe. So he got to play with Wes Montgomery. Mm. He even got to play with Elvin, and I never got to play with Elvin. He played with Chet Baker. Uh, he played, I think, with Earl Fa Father Hines. Um, he played with Art Pepper. All these different people he got to play with. He said the most frightening week of his life was, I think, he subbed for Eddie Gomez in the Bill Evans Trio for like a few nights. Wow. And he said he was in way over his head. He could barely hang on. The main thing that he did for me, aside, well, he did many things he taught me, but one of the hugest things was I didn't want to learn how to read music, and he forced me to learn. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine... I he just said, you have to do this. Otherwise you won't be able to play with all these players. And so he made me do it. Like he kept putting stuff in front of me to read yeah. and forcing me to do it. And he'd get mad at me because if he fidgeted and played some of it, I would hear it and play it. Yeah. So he really forced me to learn how to read over time, which is ironic because then I became a studio musician. I, I mean, I really learned to read. Yeah. But, but when people would say that to him, oh, man, he can really read, he would just start laughing because he remembers when I couldn't read anything and I would be counting the lines and the spaces mm -hmm. trying to figure it out. I was horrible. I always tell my students, if they're struggling with reading, I said, don't worry, I was the worst in the history of music. I was terrible. Wait, you haven't heard me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had to become strong at it because I wound up playing with all these people that write a yeah. lot of music and I became a studio guy too. Yeah. That was demanded of you. Did Chris give you any tips on, on you know, because sometimes these high pressure situations are there when in fact, like a, like a great player puts something in front of you and you have to play it and you have to deliver. Did you have some advice on that or do you have something that you that is important to you in these kind of situations yeah there's a whole checklist because of all the experiences i've had in the recording studio i've learned so much i always tell my students get there early mm -hmm. because i used to do these big films i still do them i play on a lot of films so it used to be in la when i was very young breaking in it was petrified to do this stuff i mean you'd be in a big room big sound stage they would brought they would um project the film on the wall big huge screen you know on the wall and there were stand lights and you'd be reading and um so you'd get in the in there early and you'd look at the there would be a pile of music on your music stand like this thick of all the cues for the whole day And maybe it represented, if you were on a film for three days, maybe there was three days of cues, or they kept adding them every day. So the trick that the older guys told me that were really incredible, I was around a lot of amazing session guys, they would say, make sure you, when you get there early and you look through the whole pile and find the hardest one and make yeah. sure you learn it. 
When you look at a new piece of music, you automatically have to check the meter, see if there are any meter changes, uh, tempo changes, dynamic changes. Um, and I started to learn how to group the music in sounds, harmonically, scales. So when I look at a piece of music, I'm immediately grouping the lines that I see into a sound. And most yeah. bass parts are like that. If you look carefully, you'll see the arpeggios and the scales that everything is derived from. Boom, it's right there. Hmm. If you're paying attention, things tend to group in a certain way and they'll lay some, unless something is very open and through composed and completely, but usually there are strong tonalities in the bass part. Even if it's linear, really linear, it's obvious to me. I can, if you throw a piece of music in front of me, I'm already grouping. Yeah. And I'm looking for the hardest part and I'm looking for all the tempo changes and, and the key changes and the awkward parts that are written badly for the bass. Yeah. There are many people who don't know how to write for the bass. So I call it the curse of Chick Corea. Many people have called me into their recordings and said, write written stuff that just is basically unplayable. And said, well, you can play this, right? You play with Chick. Yeah. It was like, wow, I don't know if I can play it. Especially when people started writing a lot of odd meter stuff. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that stuff, um, you know, you can tell when somebody writes some stuff when it's organic and it grooves, like Danilo's music or yeah. somebody like... Um, uh, his student, the alto player Miguel Zanon, mm -hmm. uh, his music, or or Ed Simon. Um, I've played with these guys. They write music that has a groove and a lyricism, even though it's odd meter. There's a whole bunch of other people that tend to, I think, sit there and try to figure out the hardest thing they can write, and then they write it and torture people with it. Um, so <laughs> I've been on some recordings where, you know, they only have a day and they overwrite the record. So they wind up being totally stressed out. Half the time they can't even play their own music. And those of us who are trained in this, you know, we'll get through the record. We'll be able to play it somehow. But at the end of it, you're like, I don't know. If, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think I'll ever remember one, yeah. one of the melodies. But don't you also find that um, like, great music although it might be very hard at times usually is more easy to read like if it's written really well it might yeah. be complex and hard to play but it's easier to read than something that is just somehow unnatural or not written well uh, yes. or yes. comes out of more of the brain right part totally like That's the misconception about Chick. They would say, well, you played all that stuff. Everything that Chick wrote for me, even the challenging stuff, I was able to find a fingering for that made it lay. Mm -hmm. Some were harder than others. But harmonically and melodically, and he never wrote in odd meters. He wrote in 4, 4, 3, 4, and 6, right. 8. So there wasn't uh, this heavy cerebral thing where you had to like sit there and study your part for a week before you could play it. Mm -hmm. But some of that stuff sounds so complicated. 
Although played so naturally, but uh, I'm I'm wondering about the rehearsal process with that band or with these bands. Well, that that band was the electric band. Yeah. Everybody was a really good reader. Uh, Frank, maybe less so, but Frank would memorize everything on the guitar. Eric is a ridiculous reader. Eric Marienthal, unbelievable. Mm. A lot of times, Chick wouldn't even write a transposed part for the alto sax. Yeah. He would just sight transpose it. Now those were hard things. Um, yeah, often the band was very good. I mean, we didn't do a lot of rehearsing. We had some rehearsing before the records, or we would be out on the road and we played the music a lot. Mm -hmm. Long tours, a lot of tours, hundreds and hundreds of gigs. So, and I got used to his style of writing. Mm -hmm. And then things I started to hear and understand harmonically and and the way he thought about things. And then it just became natural. Yeah. Sometimes there were, you know, obviously some of those lines are really, they don't lay that easy on the bass. But they made so much sense. And they were all, like I said before, they were grouped in sounds and changes and linearly they were expressing things. They weren't oblique and detached. Yeah. You know. Hey there. Thanks for checking out the podcast. If you enjoy these conversations, please consider joining me on patreon.com slash Pablo Held for more educational videos, lead sheets, early access to episodes, online hangouts, music recommendations, Bandcamp discount and more behind the scenes stuff from the podcast. The generous support of my patrons helps me to pay for the running costs of this podcast and it helps me to keep it going into the future. All right, let's get back to the episode. But uh, what would be like a um a typical situation when Chick brings in a, a song, a tune? Uh how would it how would it unfold? I had a lot of freedom. The bass players in his bands always had massive amounts of freedom. So, for instance, um, when he brought in, everybody talks about got a match because it was really this crazy line. And everything. Yeah. I, like a fool, volunteered to play the melody. I don't know what I was thinking. We were playing the song and I thought, well, maybe because at first it was a, just a trio, that band. Mm -hmm. And that was the reason why I got a six string bass. Because I felt like his music and we were a trio and I had to follow him soloing. Right, yeah. So I needed some another range. Orchestrationally, I felt like I needed another higher range to get over the top of the keyboards which are thick and the drums which are thick and then I wanted the low notes because the keyboards he had all these synths and he was playing all these big low notes and I wanted to play the low notes right. too you know so it was an orchestrational choice that led me to the six string mm -hmm. and it was a big challenge to learn I mean I didn't get it until two weeks before the big the first big tour in 86, I believe, mm -hmm. where we really started going on the road. 85, we played some gigs. But, yeah. Phew, crazy. 
So yeah. he he wouldn't really say a lot of things to you as a basis in terms of what he w wants from you or something. Yeah, some things. Obviously, there were the comp the compositions that had lines for me to play or yeah. um, or counterpoint within a song, or and then there were changes for other parts. Um, and we, Dave and I, came up with a lot of grooves. Uh, sometimes he would say, well, I want it to sort of feel like this um, in terms of he would play what he was going to play and this is the feel, but he didn't say, well, you have to play this and that. We would. He gave us a lot of freedom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because Miles was like that. He said Miles didn't really tell them a lot how to play yeah. or what to play. So he was the same, came from that school. I just yeah. listened to it. I got a match uh, a couple of hours ago again, and it sounds so great. It's so fresh. And also, I love that that second, like the sh almost shout chorus that happens in the drum solo, like the, yes. the other line. And I love that about Chick's music, that there's something, when you think you know what the song is, he'll throw something else at you that's still part of the song, and the, the song keeps on growing. Absolutely. When we first started playing that tune, there was just the melody. And there was no shout chorus yet. Mm -hmm. So one day, you know, we, I was living in L.A., and so was Chick, and um, we were flying up to San Francisco for a gig. And that particular day, I think it was just two seats next to each other. I don't know where Dave was but in the plane, but I was sitting right next to Chick, and he, he took out a piece of music paper, and he just started writing all this stuff. I see all these eighth notes flying around on the paper, and finally I said, Chick, what's that, man? He said, oh, you'll see when we get to the gig. So we got to the sound check, and it was all those shout chorus lines. Beautiful. And we read them at the sound check, and we played them that night. And it was kind of scary, um, but I remember doing it. Great. I was 25. What did I know? You know. <laughs> Beautiful. I was just full of uh, energy, and it was the perfect gig for me. I really wanted to play with him. I was trying to get that gig. Mm -hmm. Whatever it was, I didn't know the music. I just wanted to play with him because I knew I could play both instruments with him. Mm -hmm. I had been playing with Joe Farrell. Right. And Ayerto and other people that had played with him. And I kept asking Joe, when are the, doesn't he ever have auditions? He said, not really. He doesn't do that. So, yeah. Incredible. It's hard to believe that he actually slipped away like that, like the way he did. We didn't know anything about his. Yeah. Very that. unexpected. Yes. I mean, I didn't know him, but uh, uh, he always seemed so full of life and so yeah. energetic and never really... I mean, of course, he looked older after a while, but uh, he felt like a, whenever I saw him yeah. live or something, he felt like a young kid. Yeah. I love that something like Jeff Ballard pointed to me to to towards something that sometimes he felt like um, Chick wouldn't even have sat on the stool yet and he was already playing, you know, yeah, when yeah, they walked yeah. on stage. And that's something that I've, 
try to do myself now after Jeff told me about it, because sometimes there's this moment of you sit down on your stool and everything yeah, yeah, becomes yeah, serious. Yeah. And now yeah, yeah, I will yeah. play my first note. But if you just reach out while you're, you know, yeah, there's a there's an energy. And I really have to almost like every time now I sit on the piano bench after this this talk with Jeff, I feel I, I think about Chick, actually. Yeah. Well, he was very playful. You know, his idea was you have to invent games for yourself to play and do things that just keep you interested. And he was he never lost that childhood like spirit. Same with Wayne. Wayne is like a kid. He'll he just find stuff and it's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. What were some of the chick albums that were so important to you? It, it especially in that time where you were like pre prepping to finally get to play with him. Um well obviously the first one was huge. And also the trio records were great. One of the and and um one of the ones that were was very adventurous out of the electric band stuff was this record called Inside Out. It mm -hmm. sounds like Bella Bartok meets the electric band. It's really like when we heard the demos, we were like, what is going on? How are we going to mm -hmm. play? I mean, it was like, what is this? We didn't know what to do. Um, And one of my favorite bands that I was in with him, too, was late. Later uh, was the one with Bob Berg and Gary Novak. Mm, yeah. There was a record called Time Warp. Mm -hmm. And then another record where they released... When we did Time Warp, we also recorded a bunch of standards, too. And Chick had this amazing arrangement of that old feeling. It's mm -hmm. incredible. And uh, that band did some several tours of Europe. That was a great situation. Gary Novak is a great drummer. I really like it. Unbelievable. Playing. Yeah. Unbelievable killing yeah yeah totally um so all those records i mean and then then what he did for me was crazy i mean he he got me the record deal with grp so they didn't want to sign a bass player necessarily and he made them do it hmm. and then he produced the first record with me and he just showed me how to make records. He said, I know you, he said, I believe in your writing and I know you want it. You kind of know what you want to do. So he said, I'm just there to help in any way. And I said, well, would you play? <laughs> <laughs> and he did. But he taught me how to make records too. How so to how, do you, how do you do a record? Man, he, he taught me how to be so organized, you know, make the budget out, figure out who you want to play, figure out what it's going to be. You know, he had a team, too. He had a, you know, whole management group. Mm. And then his manager became my manager. And so just he was very organized about everything. And the studio was part of the organization, of course, as it always is. But he gave me an incredible deal. We had a lockout at Mad Hatter, his studio in L.A. And it was like you come in at 6 p.m. And you can stay till 9 a.m. Wow. And it's 600 bucks. Pretty good. It was amazing. Mm -hmm. Amazing for the time. Mm -hmm. And so we would do a couple of tunes a night. And you had a record in four or five days. So it was really relaxed. Yeah. 
But we, you know, there was a lot of production and interesting things that happened on those records because we had time. And then later on, you know, we'd be on the road. He said, well, what do you, do you have any dream projects, things you really want to do? And I said, well, I want to do something with an orchestra and, and do something that shows my classical stuff off. And that's why Heart of the Bass happened. Because mm -hmm. the regular GRP label, they didn't want to do it necessarily. And so he had that little division of GRP called Stretch Records. Mm -hmm. And the Heart of the Bass was the first record he did on Stretch. So he was always going out of his way to encourage me. And he, when we were doing some of those electric band records, we'd sit in the lounge and there was another grand piano there and I would be playing some of my compositions and he would say what are you doing and I'm saying well I'm just trying to write he goes yeah I, I can see that he said you really need to have a band and you need to be playing those compositions and you need to record them and I was like sounds great how is it going to happen hmm. and he said leave it to me I'll take care of it and he did how he got me the record deal with GRP right but and also the, the band, me. the band part. I mean, well, he just encouraged me. He said, "You have all these tunes. Why don't you put yeah. together a band and, and just play?" There's clubs here that'll have you in L.A. And so I did. Mm. And I had some really cool guys in my band. I mean, Alex Acuna played in my early bands on mm -hmm. drums. Tommy Breckline. Uh, the the first band I had was very interesting. I had some bebop bands too, but when I started doing this stuff towards what I was going to record. I had a band with two keyboard players, John Beasley and David Witham. Great players. Also very heavy jazz guys, too. So they were jazz piano players that also played synth. Yeah, they got some great sounds out of those. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And and they, I mean, Dave had studied with Jackie Bayard. Mm. Uh, John and I used to play with Freddie Hubbard. And um, so... As did Billy Childs and I. Mm. Um, Chick loved Billy, too. He, Billy was allowed to come to our rehearsals. I remember him coming to our rehearsals and hanging out when we were doing a rehearsal for a record. Chick loved mm -hmm. him. Really, really dug his compositional mm -hmm. stuff. I mean, Billy was an incredible composer in, as a teenager. Mm -hmm. He was already studying orchestration. He went to USC. He got his degree as a composer. Mm. He was heavy already. So anyway, so there's a lot of experiences. I mean, we could spend the whole time talking about Chick. And um, and when I got with Chick, I immediately, the first gig, I met Herbie. He said, um, okay, the first thing we're going to do is the Merv Griffin show, TV show, national television. And it's going to be you and me and Herbie and... Tommy yep. Breckline. And I was like, there's what? a video of that. There's a shred video of that. Too, there's a great really shred. I, I love the shred that also. Is hysterical. <laughs> I saw that I was on the floor. Anyway, yeah. so here I am. I'm 25 years old and I'm looking at across and there's these two guys that whose pictures I saw on records. I mean, yeah, it was so freaky. And then that later on led to me meeting Herbie. And getting to know him, and later on we did some playing and over yeah. the years and recording. And in 1986, the second year that I was in the band, because I got the gig in '85, I met Wayne. 
And by 87, I already played on Phantom Navigator. And then here and there we'd play because I was still with Chick for many years. Mm -hmm. And then I wound up being with Wayne. And then that band lasted 20 years. And Wayne is like my second dad. Yeah. Let's get to Wayne. Uh, the minute I started uh, this meeting here, uh, I, I stopped listening to Phantom Navigator. And I love that album. I really love that album so much. So this is the first time you get to play with Wayne and you play on Forbidden Planet and you play on Mahogany Bird and Yamanja, those killing songs. But I mean, for, we have to talk about Forbidden Planet but because it's just incredible. It's it's Yeah. And then we wound up doing other arrangements of Forbidden Planet later. Yes, with orchestra, right? Acoustic, yeah. Great. Yes. Now, this is the thing. That record, I remember rehearsing at his house with live yes. players, and it was incredible. Terry Lynn. Um, was Jim Beard also there? Yeah, there was different bands on that record. I can't remember. Or Mitch Foreman or... Yeah. Or I forget. But I didn't play on the whole record, but I remember rehearsing a bunch of the stuff, and the production on the record is really strange. It was uh, David Rubinson, his manager, and this producer that they got. And, it, you know, when you heard the music played by live people, it was insane because it was so deep and brilliant. So I, that's the only thing I would say. Right. It's still great, but yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a lot of electronics and stuff that I think it didn't, The production didn't do the music justice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can I can see what you mean, but what I what I really want to know is, like we've we've talked about the film moment, like you're 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 getting there early, you pick the hardest song. Yeah, yeah. I'd say Forbidden Planet is a pretty hard song. What There's was a, your process of learning that song? I don't remember. It's so long ago. Mm -hmm. It's 1987. Yeah, But I know one thing. I was very serious about playing people's music. And one of the reasons that I became, um, I think, uh, close with composers is they knew that I would take, they could write more freely for the bass. And they knew that I would respect that and learn it. I mean, really learn it. Yeah. Not just sort of get through it. And so... I think that's one of the reasons Wayne and I hit it off so much because he knew that I respected his and loved his music and his bass parts are amazing. Yes. Yes. Nobody writes bass lines like that. Wow. And the mm -hmm. stuff on High Life that he wrote. Ooh. Yes. Because um, we started doing like, I remember when we did Children of the Night, the newer arrangement that's from High Life with the acoustic quartet that we had. Yes. So cool. There's one with the NDR Big Band where you guys play this. There's one so up in, up in, in Kiel, Germany, yes. the Jazz yes. Baltica. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, that was a deep experience for us. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was, yeah, that's interesting. The, the very first thing, you know, some of the very first music I had to play You know, but he knew, see, he already already knew because he that we had that tour in 86 called the Chick Wayne and Al tour. Al Demiola would open solo guitar 
And then either Wayne's band would open for us or we would open for Wayne. And Wayne's band at that point was Tommy Breckline and um, Gary Willis. Right. And either it started off with Tom Canning, but quickly became Mitch Foreman. Right. And Wayne. And they were playing all that music from Atlantis, which had some killer bass parts, too. Oh, yes. And so when I got the gig with him a little later, you know, here and there, um, I think part of the reason I got the gig was because I could play the bass parts, <laughs> you know, and I would do it. I would, and I was also a jazz musician. I played upright too. And, but at first it was only electric for me on that gig for years mm. until it really became an acoustic situation. Uh, when we started the quartet right before that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about the quartet, and um, I really want to expand this topic because this is one of the most important bands for me ever. Uh, I mean, uh, so I, ca I can't really put it into words, but when I first heard you guys, I didn't know anything that you guys were doing. I couldn't understand it, but I loved it, and I loved this feeling of not knowing and floating around. Yeah. Although you guys were playing these songs that I knew, but I've never heard them played like that before. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm wondering, because I've heard Danilo, you and Brian before in other contexts, before you guys played with Wayne. And I assume that realizing the amount of freedom that you guys unlocked in this band how how came this realization about uh, because at some point wayne must have put sanctuary in front of you you know uh must have put footprints i don't know of course you know it the song but all these songs at atlantis you know but what made you realize oh he actually wants us not to just come for him well know? he would say it he said you know here's the song but he said i want to You know, he he wanted he really had a con, a conceptual idea where he didn't want people to know when we were playing the written music or when we were improvising. He wanted the improvising to sound like compositions. That's yes. why compromising that word came mm -hmm. about. He wanted it. He wanted to start from nothing. That's yeah. what zero gravity meant to him start from nothing and compose and he didn't want us to have to commit always to a certain kind of groove he wanted this thing to be like time without meter also rubato but grooves without strict meter mm -hmm. so we just kind of ran with it he gave us incredible freedom mm. and he wanted us you know to sort of jump off the cliff without the parachute kind of thing. He wanted that kind of reckless. And it worked out with us. The, we were three guys that, I mean, I had already been with him for a while. So I knew, yeah. I, I didn't know this part yet. Because the other groups that we were playing were, it was really electric and I played my six string and the arrangements were, you know, the stuff from Atlantis. So you play all this through composed music, and then the blowing was always on one chord. Right. 
and Terry Lynn was playing and there were these cool grooves and we stretched out and Wayne, that was a watershed moment in my life because he, he his solos were so creative and so deep that I felt like a, that my solos sounded like a two-year-old. And I'd been playing with Chick and everything. I had already mm -hmm. been playing with all these people. And all of a sudden, he would go, ah, da, like two notes, and I would be like, oh, my God, I mm -hmm. cry. I said, okay, that kind of depth, I need, I need to dig much deeper spiritually. And when I play a note, and the sound and the depth of the feeling and the and the rhythmic placement of things it has to be better yeah somehow it has to mean more so i had to not rely on my little bag of tricks you know my language and all my linear stuff i had to learn something else you know mm -hmm that would take take way more chances and dig deep. And also, it was so much more interactive. Yeah. We really were composing counterpoint with each other. Yeah. In real time. So we had a chemistry, though. We loved each other. We had played on Danilo's record before that. Motherland. Yeah. And so we had something already. And it was special, and I knew it. I, I remember hearing Brian on a... Uh, I was already playing with Danilo. I mean, Jack DeJanette put Danilo and I together. And um, I started recording with him on, I think the first record was Central Avenue that I was mm -hmm. on. And uh, so when he finally told me, because I had heard Brian on a, I think a Joshua record, Joshua Redman record or something, and I freaked out. I heard him play, and I went, "Oh my God! I gotta find who is this guy?" You know. When he said that he had Brian Blade for the record, I was like, "Oh, perfect! Finally, we're gonna play." And it was like, boom! Like when we started playing, it was crazy. So the trio. But when they first joined the band, they kept saying, "Do you think he likes it, or what do you mm -hmm. think?" And I said, "Well, I I can tell you this." He's starting to bring all this music that he never brought before. I never saw this stuff. And he brought Fall and mm -hmm. all this, this music that we never played in the other groups. Wow, you guys played Fall. That's, that's, that's Early good, on, we did. Good to hear. We yeah. didn't play it very often. Mm -hmm. He didn't want to... He was writing new versions of things. He never wanted to go backwards. Yeah. We tricked him into playing Go, but then we did this whole brand new arrangement with that yes. giant tag that he wrote at the end. Yes. Da, 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 with all these different changes. And so. Um, and Chief yeah. Crazy Horse, you made him. Did you guys make him? or did No, he, no, he brought he, that. He brought it. He brought that. Go happened because he quoted something that sounded like Go one night. And Brian started going, man, we should play Go. And I remember, um, you know, thinking, okay, well, Danilo and I were scheming. Then we said, well, let's, I got to find the record. Oh, it's on Schizophrenia, I think. So I was in Paris. We were on, on the road in Paris. And I didn't have the record with me. I don't think I owned it yet. Mm -hmm. I had heard it, but, and I remember John Beasley was in, in Paris at the time playing with somebody else. And, and she just so happened that he had the CD with him. 
So he gave it to me to take, and we started transcribing. You know, the, uh, Danilo and I transcribed that intro with the three horns. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. Which is beautiful. And we never used it. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't want to play that part. So we tried that. But then we got into this whole other thing on that song. Ooh, that's great. I love that version. But I have to tell you about um, Atlantis. Atlantis was the first song, I mean, was the, was one of the songs that I hadn't heard before. So the first time I heard Atlantis was on Footprints Live. Wow. So, and of course, I listened to it repeatedly, repeatedly, and was like, wow. Where, did, where does all this come from? It sounds so, as you said before, it sounds so improvised. Yeah. And that was actually the other way around. When I then checked out the original, I, I noticed, shit, Danilo's playing all the written stuff. He's playing all That's these counter He's doing the orchestra, the orchestration be, be around, but it sounded to me like improvised lines yes. when he played yes. it. And you guys too, yeah, of course, with the bass lines and everything, you know, that was a song where I was so um, uh, surprised to see how much written material you guys played. Yeah. Yeah, the, the idea was to fool people with that. He didn't want them to know when we were playing. Like, because he would bring in these six-page things or four-page things and then go, yeah, we're just going to play page two. And we were like, really? This is a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. And he would say, no, nah, no, nah, I think... This just this section. We'd be like, <laughs> yeah. That that I, there. I have to ask you, what's what about Starry Night? That there has to be more than. I mean, I love everything that is on on the record with Starry Night, but it seems to me that's like a four or five page thing, right? And um, I'd have to listen to the record again to to tell you what happened because I don't even remember now. Yeah, I but, think the most of what you guys play is that da do da da do da. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And that became other things too. He used that da do da with the you know with that that Wayneish chord where you have like an A flat two over C. Yes, that's a big sound with him. Yes, da -do -da. It's a, another it, another it's one of those. Portal. Parallel. Yeah, it's very it, important. And it's a portal to something else. Like yes. like an yes. augmented chord can go so many different yeah. ways if you change one note. And the same with this chord. Oh, yeah. And he... Wow. The way he uses that chord. It's incredible. With, and that's, with, that's a whole long progression Yes, in the original. And that, that became something else, too. That was part of, that's in something else too, one of his other songs. Mm. That that thing with those kind of chords. With Danilo, I talked about uh how he learned Joyrider. And uh I want to know from you how you learned that song. Because I learned you, it, I was play playing it before? before the other group. Yeah. That we played it's a two voice canon. Yeah. And um My original part was getting chewed up so much that finally I put it on finale so that I could travel with that part. Yeah. And, you know, but that's all it is. It's incredible. So that when we improvised off of it, we were improvising off those lines. Mm -hmm. 
So it wasn't like, oh, yeah, now we're going to play the changes. I mean, there's implications, and Danilo found all kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. That's the other thing, too, is unless you're close with Wayne, you know, and I, I've been with him longer than those other two guys even, Brian and Danilo, you really can't know how much Danilo really assimilated Wayne's whole harmonic language. Mm -hmm. There's only a couple of people, really. There's Herbie and him. Mm -hmm. And Zavinul, really, huh? Yeah, yeah. But Zavinul, even different because he he had his thing. Yeah, exactly, yeah. But Herbie and, and, and Danilo really, and, they, you know, they have their thing too, but they really understood deeply. They went in there, mm. you know, uh, in a way that, how how long was Weather Report together? 15 years, I think. Yeah, well, there you go. Danilo was in, we 20 years, the quartet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Herbie's been dealing with that harmonic language with Wayne since the 60s. So... Um, that's what I mean by that. Yeah. Just the amount of time spent in that harmonic world. I've spent more time in that harmonic world than any other bass player. Yeah. And it changed my life. As a composer and an arranger and an orchestration person, too. Mm. Yeah, Because it's audible he, in your music. He really supported me in my orchestrations and my outside things and commissions that I was doing and classical crossover stuff. Would you send him things and ask for advice? No, no, it wasn't like that. It was just more like from me playing his stuff and looking at his stuff for so long and marveling at it. Danilo mm -hmm. and I really studied. We went in on that stuff. Yeah, can you tell me about it? What happens when you guys study yeah, the music? Well, yeah, I can tell you. I don't know if he spoke about this with you. I wonder if you can hear the piano from here. Go ahead, man. Let's I'll try it. Turn up. I'll turn up. This is something we wound up calling it the four tonic system. Mm. You know, so here, here's another chord that Wayne uses, you know, the 13 flat nine. Right? Mm-hmm. diminished thing in many ways but he doesn't play um, the kind of you know everybody goes you know yeah. half step. he doesn't do that he plays major and minor triads in sixths and all this stuff based on the diminished scale so so He plays all these diminished ideas with major and minor triads. Yeah. I'll show you what I mean. So he's, it's a C13 with a flat nine. He's playing C major and C minor triad, E flat major and minor, mm -hmm. F sharp major and minor, and A major and minor. Right. So he's going up.
four places kind of like you know right all, parking on all four of the of the uh, and then you know so he would go boy you know all these vaulting intervallic things yeah of scales and so you know when i first started playing with him even before danilo got there i was always freaking out i was like what the heck is he doing over these changes yeah How come it sounds so magical and mystical and there's no scales. Yeah. I mean, it's more so, lyrical than scales. Yeah. And, yeah. and I started going, well, I need that. What is that? And then we would sit and work on all that stuff in the sound checks. Sound checks became, I, I'm, I don't know if Danilo mentioned that, but that was a huge laboratory for us. Yes, he did. But I want to get your perspective. So feel free. So, so for me, the interesting thing was not only these things, like, putting them on the base. So Danilo was working on all this stuff. So he would come in with all these things. He would have classical pieces. He would have things that he was working on. And then, you know, this kind of combining of, of sounds, combining triads and things mm. on the bass, you know, it's kind of crazy because it, it, to get her, to move around the instrument, like, so that sound, been sort of an angular I love angular things but this was yeah uh, that's that's not in the sound but yeah that's in the sound it's beautiful yeah. so you know uh, When you play something like this, do you visualize it on on the piano? Because it sounds very pianistic. Yeah, I I took it from piano, but it's it, it's you know after many years, like like I would sit there in the sound checks with him. Whatever he was working on, it didn't matter if it went like crazy, because you know obviously he, on the piano you just do this. I have to jump. Yes, I jump just to connect a few of these triads. So then it started to, my concept for the fingerboard for everything, whether I'm playing over just tunes with changes, is I, I hear and know the sound from the bottom note to the top in every sound. Mm. I see the fingerboard light up in whatever sound I'm dealing with. Yeah. So in this case, I'm, I'm seeing all the, the 
permutations of the, you know, I'm thinking the A triad, the A flat triad, the F sharp triad, the E, e flat, and how do I connect them? Yeah. Yeah. Interval with wide intervals, skips and stuff. That's my thing that I love. Mm. You know. So that's what happened, you know, and Danilo would be practicing all these things and I would just by ear join him. Yeah. And it really, you know, it stretched me. I, I was always trying to veer off and trying to find ways to have more of uh, an interesting lyrical thing on the bass, mm -hmm. you know, because then then you could go. That's combining. That's still that sound. Yeah. But there's infinite possibilities with that. Right. I just found a couple more. You know, I, I, yeah. I, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't, um, I don't and, I, and I wrote a bunch of etudes for my students, forcing them to get away from just knowing the instrument step by step. Right. That's the beginning of it. Yeah. You can't learn the fingerboard without being able to hear, okay, the next note is this in this chain. Mm -hmm. But I don't like the idea of, you know, and Danilo and I talk about it a lot, the Western concept of scales and, you know, chord scales and everything is like based on running scales and yeah. people sound horrible when they do that. Yes. And the great masters don't do that. They don't sound like that. No. No. So I don't play like that. <laughs> I, I don't want to play like that. You know, this sounds more magical to me it's more yes. interesting yes i practiced my scales like crazy because when i went to college you know i all of a sudden had to be a classical bass major mm. so with the scales with the bow and all the stuff all that and i still use the bow a lot i was shedding today i was mm. working on some shoros by uh this one is dominguinos do you want to play it no <laughs> work on it uh you know but it, it it's tricky but i am working on it yeah Great. yeah yeah th there there are a lot of jumps also in those shows right yes yes and i worked it out i found how to do it so that it it makes sense mm. to use the stronger sounding parts of the bass you know mm -hmm. while dealing with it you know i could really relate to uh those those uh finding those tries within the um uh, diminished scale that's yeah. how uh when i first uh, got into that scale i had no idea of and all, all i was doing was play that scale and ever whenever there was a diminished chord in that sheet right. i would play right. the notes of the diminished chord which sounded fine but i was scared i was scared of it me too But the thing, what really, and I can so relate to this, uh, what really helped me to, to, within the unfamiliar, find the familiar, because the those triads, we know those triads. 
But do we really see them within this case? So they are, are apparent to yeah. us, like yeah, yeah, yeah. almost like a cutout, like they jump at us. It's so the A major in C, yeah, and, yeah. you know, C a half note, uh, whole note, you know. Um, that was something that I really, that was an eye-opening thing for me and to see you guys also, you know, looked at it that way. is so very cool to, yeah, to hear. It, it, um, because we heard him doing it. Yeah. Like all of a sudden you go, Boro, ah, mm -hmm. hey like he, it was like, whoa, what's happening? You know, it's like yes. a movie, you know. But once you Very start cinematic. doing this, then on the, the other chords, the chords that you think you know, the yes. ones from before, it becomes yeah. also there. It becomes more lyrical. Yes. It becomes more yes. strong. I, I, you know, and I, I had an advantage having a, my brother, you know, he was learning changes. He showed me the chord forms. When I was a little kid on my electric bass, I could play all the arpeggios of a lot of the sounds I already knew. So um, that helped me when I went to this, be more organized and, you know, learning, you know, the sounds of chords up and down the whole instrument, you know, and um, thinking bigger and wider than just, oh, here's my little bebop lick over a D minor seven. Right, know? right. I always, te I always do this for my students. I say, okay, C major. Yeah. If if you follow this thing like I'm saying, then C major is also So it's mm. it's C major, but it's a global C major, not <laughs> yeah. no. you know, yeah. it's not that. It's like, do you really know where all of C major is on the instrument? Yes. That's where you great. make it sound like it's not even C major anymore. Mm -hmm. But all the notes, I didn't play one chromatic note in any of that. So then when you add the chromatics. Throwing in other things too, but yeah. it's still 
it's still, you know, I'm thinking about coming back home to C major. Mm. So that's a different approach uh, than I, I had to kind of really. It was a good thing that I studied classically in terms of getting free of of certain things because I didn't want to. Um, I didn't want the bass to tell me what I was going to play. Yeah, that's good. That's hard because it's mm -hmm. such a physical thing, you know, on this bass. My, Chris Paler, you know, also made it possible for me to get some of my instruments. I'm paying for this on time. This was Art Davis's bass. It's a Galliano, oh, wow. an Italian bass. And he played it on Africa Brass with Train. This bass? Uh, this bass. Wow. Yeah. It's a killing bass. Check this out with the bow. It's It's got a real thing, you know. It's a beautiful instrument, you know. Uh... put on but I oh I don't see it oh yeah it's all well you'll hear it in a second so if you go here let's just open it up where does it go does it go to the C or B natural all the way to the C so you hear the voice of the instrument the instrument has a thing yeah one of my favorite albums is uh, directions in music by Herbie oh yeah and I'm we we haven't talked about Herbie so much now, but he's he's my biggest hero, and um, I'm I'm curious about two things. But let's start with uh, um, the rehearsal process to that music. How you guys put that music together? We got with... together, yeah. We got together with Michael and um, Brian and I, and uh, Roy Hargrove, and we went out to. Santa Cruz, we rehearsed in a studio and we played at Quimba Jazz Center, that little jazz club. Brian and I mini-disced everything from that tour. We have all these mini-discs. Wow. And actually, some of the performances are even better than the record, I think. But, of course, we did it at Massey Hall, which is the same place that Bird did his thing. So of course. They yeah. wanted to use the one from Massey Hall which was great too, but I got to say, there were some other nights that were I, ridiculous. I have a few bootlegs from that tour, and I, I, there, were, there are so many great things that happened there, and <laughs> man. Michael playing solo Naima is... Oh, yeah. Crazy. But, you know, what killed me was Herbie's just magic, crazy, unbelievable improvisational genius. Yeah. And, and the fact that he redid the arrangement on Sorcerer and yes. added these things and, 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 and never, you know, he was so free, but he was always there when we had to do the dun, 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 like the yes. hits. Always. 
He's one of the most insane coppers I've ever been around in my life. Yeah, tell me about it. How does for it a bass, feel? Yeah, for a bass player, um, for a bass player, no one is better than that as a comper. I and mean, why? I, he's kind of the all-star. He might be the heavyweight champion of comping. It's hard. I mean, you know, I play with some, they're yeah, all yeah, great. Yeah. But he could, because he leads and he follows at the same time. Mm. There's no place you can go that he can't come with you. And he'll feed you. Mm -hmm. And I just, I'm a huge fan. Yeah. And we got along great. You know, uh, recently, Brian and I, at the, at the Chick Corea tribute that I was musical director of at Jazz at Lincoln Center, yeah. we played two nights and we got to play trio with him. I would and have loved to see Huge that. highlight. We played, and I got him to do Eternal Child. Wow. Chick's tune. And also we played Maiden Voyage, and it was just like flying yep. in the air. Just insane. Um, that guy. Did, did he ever ta Chick talk to you too. about uh, his harmonic concept? or like? Well, how he... I mean, he helped me. Like he, if you ask him a question, he'd show you what he did. He decides to do an arrangement of so what, in which there are no straight minor chords. So he's at the piano playing his thing, and Brecker and I are like, "What are you doing? What is that?" And he said, "Oh, it's just this." So he showed us the voicing. So he's doing this. He's playing. That's a B flat major with a sharp five. Yes. And then a B flat minor major seven. And then the same thing on from A flat. So it goes. And then. Yeah. Yeah. And then. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes this too. Mm -hmm. Or, you know. Yeah. You know, that's insane. That's cool. When I when I transcribed that song, I I thought it would be like the B fret major sharp five and then the d flat major sharp five you know upper minor third but it's it's almost the same and but his what what he showed you has more of a voice leading thing built in yeah well that's what he played too like yeah. a lot so but he was playing it and brecker and i were like what you know so there was one tune i'll just tell you this before we go that there was a tune called the poet that the ballad yes. that When that came in, Roy brought it in. It was nothing like it ended up. It was a nice melody. Herbie reharmonized the whole thing right in front of us. Wow. And he started going, oh, wait, I could, you know. And Brecker and I were calling out what he was doing so he wouldn't have to stop. So, oh, that's a C, you know, that's a C7 with a sharp nine, sharp five, or uh, C13 flat nine over this and blah, blah, blah. And we were just, it was like ear training. We were sending them back to each other and scribbling them down so Herbie could just keep going. 
And at one point in the middle of it, Herbie looked up and he goes, oh, Roy, I'm so sorry. I'm changing your whole song. And Roy was like, no, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> master beautiful. of harmony, master of innovation, master of rhythmic, floating, killing, just, I can't say enough. I know you want to ask about my music. I, I hope um, we can talk about that new record I did with Chris Potter and Brian Blade. Oh, yeah. Of course. Live trio record, because that's mm -hmm. my first live recording. Yeah. yeah. I really like it, man. It's it's a beautiful record, and I've I've heard you guys in other contexts, and he's on, I mean, the trio is apparent on the uh, the line-by-line line record. Line-by-line, line, yes. Yeah. But not a, in a trio format like that. That's know? with uh, Adam Rogers playing guitar. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that was a fun record, too, but... Yeah, um, having them in the trio thing is wide open too, which I love for my mm -hmm. music. I've been doing that for a long time now. Yeah, bass, saxophone, and drums. Because for the bass instrument, it's great because you have all this area that you have space. If you want to leave a lot of room, you can. If you like the, with the six string, sometimes I can play chords, mm -hmm. and it's a different sound than you usually hear. So, how would you? I mean, I really love the Remembrance album as well. You know, that's one yeah, of my yeah, favorites. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <clears throat> and I'd say both saxophonists unlock different things within uh, Brian and yourself. Oh, yeah. I, I would like to get your perspective on that. Well, um, let's see. I mean, Joe is Joe. Joe's amazing at what he does. He has a a great sound, great history, great grasp of a lot of things. Um, it's hard, you know, to d describe because then it makes it sounds like you're you're like sort of evaluating them against each other, which I don't want to do. We, no, no, uh, we both know that th these are world class musicians, and yeah. um, but I, I, I'm always fascinated by the fact like you have a rhythm section, you have a bass and drums, and somebody else comes in, and it may be Wayne Shorter, it may be uh, Chris Potter, yeah, yeah, it may yeah. be Joe Lovano, yeah. and you guys have your thing, but every new guy that comes in will unlock a certain different it's, it's a human yeah. thing it's a human thing if you, we, we if can't you allow it. if you allow it and you're sensitive to it you will react and you will have a vocabulary or a a um a whole range of things with each person yeah now chris i've been hiring i've been playing with chris way longer than i've been playing with joe i started hiring chris because mike brecker like in the 90s, early 90s, I, I brought him out on the road, I think 93, mm -hmm. something like that, with my band, 92 or 93, because uh, I asked Mike, I, I need a tenor player, and I couldn't get Mike, he was too busy, and he wasn't really doing sidemen things so much, so uh, he said, get Chris, and so we've been playing a long time, and I found that, you know, they both interpret my music beautifully, um, so it's apples and oranges kind yeah. of, but, but, uh, I think for, um, for the widest, I mean, for, uh, such a wide range Chris has. Yeah. He goes into the electric thing also. 
Mm-hmm. Um, Joe, man, I mean, the, the playing with Joe and Brian has been amazing. We did some stuff in New York. One of the greatest weeks I ever had as a band leader at Dizzy's at Jazz at Lincoln Center many years ago. When you guys played the Freedom Suite, right? You played something from the Freedom all Suite. All kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. We played all kind. And I, yeah. I was always. I also played that with Chris quite a bit with Brian. Ah, yeah. I haven't heard that. Yeah. Well, it was live, you know, live gigs all around mm -hmm. different places. For a while I was doing that. And I even did... Uh, there were some trio tours we did with Chris, with Adam Cruz or Antonio Sanchez. Mm. When, you know, because Brian, again, Brian is... Everybody's trying to grab Brian. <laughs> <laughs> Come play with me. So, um, yeah, so... I would say in trio, the two main saxophonists that play with me are... Chris has done more gigs than anybody mm. with that trio format. And then, of course, Joe is amazing um, as well. I also play with another nice tenor player. I love John Ellis. Yeah. Very good player. He did some trio stuff with me as well. And Marcus Gilmore, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Uh, that was fun. So, yeah, the trio is a now for many years has been a recurring theme with me also because i play with so many high powered piano players i felt like in my band i needed to have a another sound so i've used guitar a lot and no chordal yeah because i have these you know very tight associations with these pianists for years and um you know and now danilo and i are you know we've been doing stuff for years and we're also talking about maybe doing a duo project mm, beautiful yeah like when you talk about that open aspect of trio without a chord in chordal instrument i was wondering about uh, some of the songs on remembrance or even also on the on the other one the new one um do you compose them on the piano or is there some aspect where you also write songs without away from the instrument because it depends, it depends on the song You have to tell right. me where. Well, um, I've I've learned today. I, I tried to learn Joe Hen. Oh yeah, and um, that was on the piano. That was on the piano. Interesting, because yeah. Joe Hen and Blues for Freddie also. They they uh, and other pieces they have. There's a sense of liberty in the melody. Yes, and I'm very interested in that because it doesn't seem to be like the melody feels like it has its own will and wants to go unexpected places yes um i want to talk to you about that uh, what what what's your perspective on that and and how did you develop that well i can tell you i remember writing joe henderson i was teaching at city college for about 10 years in harlem uh that was the beginning of really my my uh regular um college kind of teaching before that i didn't really do much of that i did master classes and everything so now i've been teaching at universities for like i don't know over 20 years yeah so i spent almost 10 years at city college so uh, what i would do is i would drive in early because it's not far from my house it takes me like 15 20 minutes to get to harlem so i would go in early to get a parking place on saint nicholas terrace near city college which is around you know around 145th and 135th and uh Uh, near Broadway up in Harlem. Mm. 
So I had a piano in my room there. And I would just sit and uh, play sometimes. Or I forget I was where I was. I think did I have a piano in my room? It was so long ago now. I think I had a piano in my room, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I would I would play and um that I was kind of working on. I I wanted to have like I, I just had the idea of a minor blues with some other changes. Yes. We have to talk about what, these other changes. Yeah, yeah. I, I have the sheet. Let me um Yeah, this is the most correct chart for what we've been doing. Uh the end, the last two bars. Yeah. We changed after a while. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I can pull it up here. We could even put it in Actually, on the screen. Yeah, yeah. Actually that ending changed the rhythm changed over the years and even even since this maybe it's one gong gang gong two three four that g flat major seven plus eleven might might come actually on beat two gong gang gong gong yeah gong gang gong gong so it could be also one dong ding gong gong but i like gong gang gong gong yeah i think on the on the album you played boom ding dong one Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, and then sometimes in the blowing, you would add those other notes. Like, I think for the for the melody, it was F, D flat, G flat. And then for the blowing, it was F, A flat, D flat, G flat. Yeah, yeah. So there was different iterations of the how that ending went. That's cool, But man. Yeah, basically, it's very, very beboppy in a way that, you know, you have those deceptive cadences, like, you know... Uh, What's a little different than normal is having the A flat minor D flat seven go back to F minor. Yes. Yes, I, w I wanted to ask you exactly about those chords, how you think about them and how they came to you. I don't know. Uh, I was thinking like of Joe and Joe and Chick are kind of interesting in the way they do those little two fives. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but you notice I did the... Uh, I just like the sound of that going up a minor third. That's yes. very Herbie too, actually. Mm -hmm. um, so that's those were the inspirations for that kind of move. And then the B minor E7, I think, is a little bit more. Um, that that's kind of interesting and more tritony, you know, kind of the going from the E7 to the B flat minor. That's a little different. Yes. Also, but it works. And the structure of the melody. Exactly, in that moment, reminds me a bit of Isotope. Somehow, the, the yeah, vibe yeah, of yeah, it. it's very Johanny. <laughs> Even that, yeah. This part, like that's yeah. then too, like having the. You think it's going to go back to B flat minor there? Yes, but in a way, G has it to does. Very, it does it in does. a way. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, just to give a minor two five back to the the tonic, so that's the kind of rationale I guess. Very piano oriented when I write these kind of things. I, I wrote it wrote it at the piano. What also struck me is like what you said yesterday about grouping, when you read something. Yes, I can see this in your compositions as well that you group, maybe unconsciously or sometimes yes, consciously. Yes. And, 
And then those are those are nice little groups. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they yeah. they can they can be a voicing, they can be a structure that that would stand on its own, but you put it on top of something, and that I think creates the that sense of liberty. And you notice it is basically an extension of the first bar, the way the intervals. Hmm. There, there, um, there's a, a second and then it comes down a third. In this case, I changed it to fit the, the B minor seven. It had to be a little different. I came down a fourth. Yeah. Um, and then I oh, did yeah. a similar thing. It's yeah. interesting. Yeah. And these are, these kind of things that I do a lot of times, it's just intuitive. And then I realize what I've done. Yeah. My mind works in a certain ordering selection now after being around all these composers all these years and listening to classical music too of course but also what i'm in, i'm interested is in uh, is uh, you have a sheet now you put this in front of people and then i start noticing which of i mean it's obvious that that you would want to do this but you change the chords when you when you go for the blowing um There, I, I can hear different changes each chorus. Yeah, minor me. blues, like it changes to a regular minor blues. You know, it's very fluid at that point. It can go anywhere. Yeah. And that was a, a little bit a hard part for me when I was trying to learn the song. I could never figure out, is it A flat minor seven and then D flat minor seven or D seven? I could, you know, the way you yeah, yeah. played the, the, um, the second bar, I think was more this type of harmony within the within the uh the melody when you played the melody yes. right yes yeah. and then it was much freer exactly it could exactly. be a regular minor blues at that point yeah but with a player like joe you you have somebody who can react to harmonic choice like that on the spot you know uh fluently. yeah and his stuff is really f free as is chris i mean they both have complete freedom harmonically yeah how did you work on being able to follow uh somebody like that like a like a horn player Flo follow their harmonies or wh what they might be thinking or you know uh, how did you work on that i think i was influenced heavily by ron carter the way what he did with miles and um you know he I remember talking to Jerry Allen about this when she was, she was an amazing musician. Um, oh, yeah. And um, she always said, you know, people always talked about how Scotty LaFaro broke up the time with Bill Evans, but Ron had his own way of breaking up the time. And also I would add to that, Jimmy Garrison mm. also broke up the time in amazing ways and followed the saxophone or, or, or commented or made suggestions of his, of their own to the to the soloist and the comper yeah so when you take the comper away you know you know usually people don't really hear down that low very easily like where we are where we live as bass players so when you take away the piano which is an orchestra and takes up a lot of bandwidth you know um in terms of frequencies when you take that away you have a lot of room and i think the soloist can hear the bass better so um, it gives them an opportunity to hear down that low and hear what you're doing. Ron, he's an architect of doom. 
he was the greatest, is the greatest architect uh, of walking that I've ever heard. Yeah. I mean, if you get together with somebody like Ron, which I think you have. Um, we, we've talked and, and we've become friends over the years. And, you know, I've always expressed to him, he was, you know, when I was first starting to hear jazz, he and Ray Brown were huge influences. But I think as time went on, his influence was even more pervasive because he moved into modern music and how you play bass, starting with Miles. You know, I heard him play with on, on those records with, you know, West Montgomery and all these things. Mm -hmm. But when he played with Miles... They opened up another window about how to play modern, how to play over the form of tunes, standards, but then stretch like to the moon. And then beyond with Miles, when you have tunes that are wide open like Dolores oh, yeah. or, um, you know, on Miles Smiles, all that stuff they're playing, all the Wayne compositions that, you know, you know, orbits and all. It's incredible what they do. Yeah. And really... The biggest compliment we ever got in Wayne's band was, you know, that those guys, you know, felt connected to that. Like they, I think they realized that they inspired us. Herbie used to come to see us all the time. He said, boy, you guys are extending now where we left off when we stopped playing. And that to us was the highest compliment and the most meaningful thing anybody could say about what we were doing, really. Yeah. So that's how I feel about Ron. I feel like his architecture and how he pointed towards the future and then fulfilled the future. Um, he was very important in the development of how to do that and break up the time in a different way from the bottom up as opposed to the top down. Mm. Can you explain as, that? That's interesting. Gary, I always tell my students to think about it that way. A lot of times when they think about breaking up the time, they think of Scott LaFaro or a European approach, ECM-ish, which sometimes is top-down. The bass players are playing in the middle register and higher mm. when they break it up. They're playing, whereas Ron would pivot from low notes. He'd have things ringing and then play up there, but there would be something, the bottom never went away. Yeah. Garrison, bottom mm. up, bottom up. I do a lot of that even though I use the whole instrument. I like the idea as a composer and an orchestrator to have not a band in the bottom Yeah, in a group. I always keep it going somehow. I don't stay up too long, ever. Mm -hmm. That's true, yeah. Because I'm still a foundational player. When I solo, yeah, I, I do whatever is necessary, but I um, when I'm accompanying... I feel like there's a lot of ways you can break it up, not just the Bill Evans trio way, which mm -hmm. is incredible. I mean, it's beautiful. Yeah, I saw the Bill Evans trio with Eddie Gomez when I was a kid. Oh wow! Yeah, in San Francisco. Any Amazing. remembrances from that? Any memories? Yeah, I, I remember. I was about sixteen, seventeen years old, and heard Eddie Gomez playing all like incredible in the upper register like that, and and I had heard George Moraz do it too. But with Bill Evans, it was a different thing because it was way, you know, the the interplay, the three-way dialogue was pretty amazing. And Eddie was in rare form. It was like 1977 or, you know, mm. 76. He was killing. And um, I'll never forget that because 
that made me that inspired me to get my high register playing together some mm. position um and to really work on that how did you work on it oh man well i studied classically but i also made exercises for myself where i would start there right there and then just play all my sounds like from one note i'll show you yeah i always do this with my students if i'm so i start from the e so there's those those four harmonics and you can call out any call out any major or minor kind of chord or any any kind of chord you want just name one. Oh, a g minor g minor so um we'll start with the the just generic dorian one and go or melodic minor oh uh g minor yeah yeah the first one Yeah, that's the first one. I don't know if I did it right the first time. I was thinking of something. That's the the, the uh, Dorian here's. Mm. Yeah. So so I, everything comes from from there as a bass, and then like um, then uh, uh, like a. sound could be D flat minor you know like you know and I practice going up these strings going straight across right whatever it is so that I know where things are great what does your ear do in this moment? It um, it has to adjust to that other sound. The ear is guiding me still because it it shows me. Well, is this a half step I need here, or a whole step, or what is this anyway? You know. Hmm. things are because I sat there for hours <laughs> was you there know? something that Chris Polo helped you uh, uh, he, no a lot of the stuff that was that came much later I see yeah I mean my, my getting into that he helped me he was my foundational guy and also always learning stuff from him about writing and stuff mm. but technically I went on my own path after I started studying classically and then I just I jumped into all these other ideas because I was, you know, needing to pursue certain directions on my instrument and I needed the freedom to do that. Mm. So I, I took a very 
uh, global approach to the instrument. I said, well, I have to be able to play through different sounds all all the way around, you know, no matter what. Yeah. I mean, um, you're very uh, well known also for switching instruments, and uh, both of them sound uh, incredible on on the, I mean, insane high level. Uh, and that's something that's very rare with usually you would you would think of somebody who plays one thing greatly <laughs> and then the other one is something like a a maybe, double yeah, yeah a double. exactly yeah. and that's not what you are and um i have to say sometimes i feel um i i think it's a high pressure situation if sometimes i have to play the grand piano and the roads on the same gig because to right, me those right, right. are two different worlds two different animals and both of them require different kind of mechanics and and physics um so i sometimes have trouble you know changing within a concert or a record sure. session but you don't seem to have that problem at all <laughs> and i well, want to talk to I, you about I, that i i um internally have to deal with it mm. Like I just picked up that bass right now and I hadn't played it all today. So it's really physical, the acoustic bass. Whereas if I pick up my electric bass, it's like a race car. Like there's no physical usually compared to that. Yeah. So I have to adjust in my head. Also, it took me some years to figure out how to not um, overplay the electric, like pl play too hard because I was so used to the pressure level needed here. Mm. Also, I added another crazy thing into it. I, you know, I've always played with the bow since college. Even in high school, I started playing with the bow. But then I really kept working at it. So, you know, I was sitting there working on that Shoro again last night. And, you know, so that that's a process. Like, I'll show you a little bit of the process with that. Mm -hmm. So... This is a Shoro written by uh, Dominguinos. So it's written, you know, it's not written for the bass. So the good thing about it is it, it challenges you in many ways, but it also, you've got to um, work with the octave displacement to make it right. So... As you can see, this is like this part. This part. <laughs> virtuosic etude kind of like you know so if you do it really slowly which is what I was doing a lot then I 
decided it needed to be slurred here. This is hard. Because it's really should be. Yeah. I, I haven't gotten it yet. You know, that's kind of crazy. Oh man, thanks for sharing that. That's, that's a process. Like I yeah. have to go very slowly for a very long time. Yeah. And what's what's your mindset when you practice? Because it looks the same. You, you look the same like you when you would play on stage and of course you are working on something but it sounds so great like it sounds on stage you know so I'm, what's I'm working on yeah I'm always thinking about rhythm and sound so I had it down at like you know 70 beats per minute you know and playing the 16th notes it's like 8th notes yeah you know really slow to figure out Cause, because I did that, I'm not far from playing at a tempo already. Mm -hmm. But I'm still, there's a divide there because as you can see, it it takes me all over the bass. So, you know, it's, yeah. it's work. It's a few octaves to deal with. Mm. Whereas if I was playing on electric bass, it would just all kind of lay... I mean, it's not, not, not easy on electric either because you still got to negotiate all those arpeggios mm. and sounds. Could you talk about what... Is there something that you've learned about the double bass, the acoustic, from playing the electric and vice versa? Like, oh, yeah. Yeah? There's definitely a cross-pollination. Um, it informs the way I played certain kind of grooves on the acoustic bass being able to play grooves that are thick and, you know, coming from African and Latin bass lines, African-Cuban bass lines or funk 
like being able to do that on the acoustic. It's a cool sound on the acoustic, but it, I was definitely informed because I started on this, on electric. So, and by uh, vice versa, I heard what made me learn how to walk. I, you know, when I was learning how to walk, I only had an electric bass for years. And so I had to make it feel like the other one. Then when I started playing this one, it informed my electric bass playing so that I could swing uh, more on the electric, which is, mm. it's more work. It's another kind of work to get well, it to bounce and do that. Why is that? It's a, a completely different instrument. Mm. It doesn't have the same physicality. The bigger instrument, you know, when you do little those little skips and booms and all those, it's just so easy on the acoustic. Mm -hmm. For me, I mean, it just feels so natural. Yeah. But to make it, to tuck in those, like I'm always telling my students, when you have a boom on an electric, you have to tuck that note in. Yeah. The downbeat is the thing that gets the emphasis, not the little triplet lick. Yeah. If you emphasize the triplet lick, like a lot of electric bass players do, it sounds terrible. And you lose the downbeat. Yeah, you lose the downbeat, the downbeat and the swing never happens. It's just like, pick it, you know, it's like, what? Mm. That's not the, that's not what we're accenting. We're going to boom, boom, like mm -hmm. where those little things that are triplet licks, they're always heading to a downbeat or coming from one. They are not the, the place, the landing point. They're pointing mm -hmm. towards a landing point or bouncing off a landing point. Mm. But they're not the focus. Your song Forgotten But Not Gone is is a great example. Yeah, of that. yeah, I mean, yeah. That, it's that's a good it's built that. in. Yeah, yeah. That's very Ronish. You know, that's extremely Ronish. You know, uh... Two, two keys at once. Yes. So this kind of stuff. Uh... The idea is that, you know, your time has to really be strong for that. And I remember, you know, when I was younger, I was trying to get all those things together. And there was a young drummer that I played with named Mike. I forget Mike's name, but he was uh, out in California. And he hadn't heard me in a while. And, he, and we played together or he came and heard me somewhere. And he goes, you know, it sounds like you really started, wor you worked on the, the st your time is much more happening when you're doing your triplets. What did you do? You know, and I, I, he, I said, well, thanks for noticing. I've been really trying to, because, you know, I always joke with my students when, if you don't land well, it's kind of like the kid who's up on a diving board at a big swimming pool and says, watch me, watch me to his parents. 
or he he or she and then they dive and they do a big belly flop and they land like <laughs> like really bad that's what that's like you know you go check me out dig -a -dig -a -dig -a -dig -a you know oh, and yeah. if you don't land well it's bad news <laughs> exactly for everyone <laughs> <laughs> but the yeah. but the open strings come in strings come in handy for that thing but well, if they if they the ring thing. too much yeah you, you can't do it yeah and that's what the electric bass players are not used to doing a lot of times because they're used to playing everything closed. Mm -hmm. They don't use the, um, except the older guys, the pioneers did. James Jamerson used them all the time because he was an acoustic bass player first. Mm. So on those famous Motown records, even if, it, if it's in key of D flat, he's using low A's, ghosting, all these low open strings that are not in the key mm -hmm. to pivot, to get to the notes he's trying to get to. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. Um, we talked a lot about the, the older guys like Ron. Um, who were some of the your peers that you've learned, uh, where you've learned certain things from? You know, what did you learn from your peers? Well, I guess if you go start going through the ages, right, like the, 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 the generations, obviously, you know, you know, I started off with Ron and Ray, and then, of course, later on, I heard PC, and then I went back and I heard Blanton, and I love Oscar Pettiford a lot. Mm. And then you hear, you know, Percy Heath and Sam Jones and all these great players. Then, you know, also, I was hearing Nils Pedersen. I was hearing Dave Holland, Eddie mm. Gomez, George Mraz, um... Uh, still, these guys are all older than me. Uh, and then I heard, uh, who else? Well, I also heard Earl May play with Dizzy Gillespie's small group, and he was playing left-handed electric bass because mm. Dizzy didn't want to travel with the acoustic because it was expensive and kind of a hassle. Did you think about using the left-handed bass then when you saw it? No, no, because I was already firmly entrenched in this. I see. I'd have been already, I I would have had already been playing about five six years on the electric, and when I was fifteen, I just started playing acoustic, so that I didn't even entertain trying to do this left-handed because then you have to get different instruments. Oh, yeah. you know, it's it's a mess. So, luckily, I play righty, and left hand does a lot of work. So um, so yeah um. Then I heard, let's see, I'm trying to think of who I heard Then the guys after that. I also heard Steve Swallow, who I loved. Um, and What's your relationship to Jocko? I, uh, well, yeah, I didn't even talk about the electric guys. I mean, the electric guys, it's like James Jamerson, Chuck Rainey, um, Jocko Stanley, Anthony Jackson. Mm. And with my peers, because Anthony's sort of a peer, but a little older. Marcus Miller, I love, love Marcus Miller. Yeah. Obviously, Victor Wooten, who's younger than me. Uh, he and Steve Bailey are really good friends of mine. And we've played together quite a bit. Also, I, I loved Victor Bailey. He was great. Oh, yeah. Well, I could name a lot of guys. And then on the acoustic bass, um, I met Jay Anderson when I was in my late teens. I moved down to Southern California and I met him, and I liked the way he played a lot. Scott Colley, who's a little younger than me, plays great. Of course, uh, you know, 
Larry Grenadier is 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 a fine player as well, and also Ben Street, mm. um, Christian McBride, a powerhouse, very strong. Um, uh, Gerald Cannon is a friend of mine. I like the way he plays mm-hmm. too. Um, I know I'm forgetting a ton of people that are friends of mine. Uh, so this is always a hard thing to do off the top of your head. You of know, of course. Is there somebody that you, people. where you practice together with somebody, you know, is there like, I'm, I'm curious about these kind of situations. Is there somebody who you would ask, you know, what, what are you checking out? Can you, you know, um, I mean, Ben Street and I have played a little bit together because we teach up at Berkeley with Danilo sometimes. So we've done duos for the kids and played like from nothing. Mm-hmm. Just improvised. And that, that's a lot of fun with Ben. Mm-hmm. We had some really cool stuff that happened. I wish I had it on, you know, I could play it for you, but I don't. Mm. Um, uh, Scott Colley and I have done a few little things, but, you know, bass players are always working. So there's no, yes. a lot of times it's hard to get together and just practice with someone else because you're always, your your practice sessions, you're very pointed about what you need to do. Yeah, exactly. Although sometimes there's some really cool stuff I would do with my students with the bow. I would play, you know, I would start on the low E and make them start on a G sharp, play intense and move up the scale. Oh, nice. With no vibrato, just like listening and blending. And mm. the times when I, I uh, have played with other bassists is in bass sections for film music. Since I was a young guy, I've always been involved in recording. So, yeah. Um, I did get to play, and since I've been in New York, I've played in the best bass sections I've ever played in in my life. Players from the Philharmonic and the Met, and me, somehow. Mm. Somehow I'm included. <laughs> so, And I learn a lot, because mm. cats who really, that's all they do, uh, I always steal from them and learn ideas and watch them like a hawk, you know. Watch them. That's, that's a good topic. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts on eye contact because yeah well I, i i believe in it also because obviously i was playing with chick for years so we spent decades staring into each other's eyes like just playing you know like he was way into that and i like that too i always look around and uh with brian and danilo and wayne's band spent a lot of time looking at brian in my life mm-hmm. and also with danilo um, in my own groups with Nate Smith, like the other night, we did two nights. Uh, we did a little mini tour of the East Coast. We were going to do longer stuff, but it just didn't work out. So we just did, there's a club called Jimmy's in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, which is a newer club, which is a beautiful art center that they made up there. Mm-hmm. Big play, big club and terrific. And then we played at a small place called the Jazz Gallery in New York City, which now is upstairs in a building. And it's, it's sort of a, a non-profit now and um we even recorded mm. like they you know you could pay a little money and they record and film you so eventually i'll probably release some of that stuff too it's pretty cool great yeah the band so what happens to you if somebody's not into uh eye contact is do you miss something or um i think so most of the people i hire are, are uh We'll look around occasionally, at least. Yeah. Yeah. Because it is important, communication. Absolutely. 
Yeah, and you can but, see something. You can adjust to certain situations if somebody is like going on out on a limb, and a certain know. look can give you uh, the the affirmation like I'm cool. Don't worry about me. I'm I'm well, trying well, things yeah. here. And and also the converse is also true. Once you've been playing with somebody for years, you could all have your eyes closed and you're really tuned in still. Yes. So there's that too. But that's born out of relationship, I think. Yes. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, um, you've just released this great uh, live album. <clears throat> and I think I, I know you were playing for at least two weeks or one one or two weeks or um, something. You... Uh, two and a half weeks, probably. Yeah. yeah. So how many concerts did you record? Uh, they only really recorded three because oh, okay. this guy came out and and one we couldn't use. It was a huge square. It was like a thousand people in a square in northern Italy. And it just didn't um, it didn't lend itself to a, a recorded sound. It was cool because he got an idea of what he needed to do. The bulk of the gig, the bulk of the record, like every song except without a song, was done in Gen Genova oh, in one night. It came from, and the first chunk is like like a part of a set. It just unfolded, and we really liked it. And so then, without a song, it was from another gig in Alba. Yeah, it's a beautiful Italy. version. Beautiful. Yeah, that that I. I when I heard that, I said, we have to put that on there. Yeah. Tell me about your, your process of putting together an album. Like, let's take this live album for now. Well, live albums are unusual. It's a different process because, you know, you hopefully have something to choose from. We had a little to choose from, but not a lot. But it didn't matter because the band, you know, those are long-term relationships and, and the music. And we've played trio before um, together. And also in different formats, we, you know, played for decades with these two guys in different things. Um, so there's a lot of there's a few new compositions too, like that out west, out west, and three pieces of glass are brand new. And there was another one too. There was another little three part suite that I wrote that we never really played that much on that tour, mm. which was cool. I would like to play that sometime, but we didn't really have time to get into it. Mm -hmm. um, so out west and also Echoes of Scarlatti that's basically an improvisation but it's based on uh, a Scarlatti sonata in D minor that Chick and I used to play mm. and then we would open up on it you know there's a there's a recording that I hope comes out someday uh, from the 2019 trio tour that we did which was the best ever um, before that tour, Dave Weckl came to me and said, look, I'm, you know, when we were younger, I, I didn't really bring the right drums and cymbals on the trio. So I'm going to bring the 18 inch bass drum and this flat rides and really do it up. So that tour was incredible. Uh, and Chick was on fire and we would do the Scarlatti. We would do the D minor. We would play the, we actually played the whole thing. But we would open up a section and he would blow. And it was incredible. Scarlatti's music, for a lot of reasons, is very interesting. He has a different groove. Yeah. 
He has a different exotic. He was from Naples. He Naples was conquered by many Arab nations. He was also worked under the Queen. So he was also in Portugal, Queen of Spain, I believe, but then also in Portugal. So he had access. I'm sure he heard African musicians. Ah, uh, yeah. Because his music, even though it's Baroque like Bach, there's something other, there's another thing going on there. Mm -hmm. And you get some different colors also, like harmonically. Yes. And I think he was influenced by that kind of Arabic thing, even though it's not, it's not overt. Mm. There's just something about the swing in Scarlatti. And if you're, you know, you, you being a pianist, I would recommend to you, Enrico Pernunzi did a, a recording called Scarlatti. Like he did the Scarlatti sonatas. He played them verbatim and then he did meditations on each one. Mm. It's totally killing. Oh, check it out. I cool. think it's my favorite Enrico Pernunzi mm -hmm. I've ever heard. Does he play this one? I can't hear you when you do that. I don't oh. know why. I think what happens is when you, when, yeah. If I if I play, you don't hear. So da 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 da. You know, you know that sounds that one? familiar. The it, B minor. It, it could be on there. I have to look yeah. at my CDs. It's an astoundingly great record. He yeah. really plays his tail off, man. Oh, cool. I played a little bit with Enrico years ago, but to me, even more than the trio playing, this solo piano stuff really mm. good um okay so you you were chosen from um uh three concerts from the from the trio from that tour. not even only you know we we eliminated the first one because the the big square and everything oh, right that was part of it. i see i see okay and then what's your process of finding a good sequence of songs Well, this this one was unusual. It was much easier than usual because the first thing from Visa through Out West and uh, Three Pieces of Glass, it just happened that way. It all fell out in a, in a chunk. And when I brought it back to, you know, my student, John Davis, who's a great bass player. He was one of my students years ago. He's an incredible engineer and a great bassist. He, he, he and his buddies, his partners, built the Bunker Studios in Brooklyn, and they run it. So that's where we did Brooklyn, mm -hmm. and that's where I did the solo of the bass, my solo bass recording, Yeah. Um, which is not all solo. Uh, but uh, So Brooklyn, I, I, love, I love the Bunker. Mm. So when I, when I got the tapes, you know, they gave me the, The, you know, the guy did a good job of capturing things live, brought it to John Davis, and he mixed the recording. And then we mastered it. They have a mastering room there, too. Alex Turk, great mastering engineer. So he said, wow, that first sequence, those tunes, they just flow into each other. It just, it sounds right. I think you should leave it alone. I said, yeah. And then uh, we put Molly in there. I can't remember... Mm. And we actually, you know, the intro to Molly, mm -hmm. with the with that with that effect that I had on the bass, where mm -hmm. an octave higher, and then you could play counterpoint with yourself. Mm -hmm. That was from another separate free intro to something, right? And okay. Put it 
in front of Molly because I felt like I needed that on the record. That sound had an inspiration to it and it inspires a certain kind of playing. And then Chris, so we had almost like three voices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I liked that. So we put it in front of Molly. It works. Sort of sailed it in. And, um, and then the Scarlatti thing was a tribute. That's, that's from towards the end of the concert. So we used it. And then we decided to put Alba, the, uh, the without a song, because we felt like, I don't know, there's just something about that version. Everybody has such reverence for Sonny's version. And um, Chris has so much, he has so many roots, as well as being so modern. See, to me, he's an interesting case, because, because of his age, too. He has, going back to Sonny, and Stanley turned to Tina and Bird because mm -hmm. he started out on alto. Yeah. And Train, Brecker, Wayne. He has this huge amount of influence and Sonny. And it's really in there. So when he plays that song, it doesn't sound like, even though he's not as young as he once was, he was a child prodigy. It sounds like somebody who's been around for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. and and it's interesting in a way. There's a parallel there be, between him and Joe Lovano because when Joe Lovano came up, his father was a tenor player, Tony Big T, who had hung out with all these famous people like Tad Dameron, and I think he had even played a jam session with Train once. So Joe grew up around his father and that big sound. His father had a big sound and all these players. So that John Schofield told me a funny story when he they arrived at. Berkeley College of Music at the same time. Schofield said, Joe sounded like an old pro as a freshman. He sounded like, where's this guy coming from? He mm. sounded like an old dude who'd been on the road for 40 years yeah. already. So they have that old soul thing. And Chris, when he was a teen, an early teen, he was a sensation. And Red Rodney and Iris Sullivan grabbed him when he was a pinhead he was barely he mm -hmm. was already playing like bird and you know like, what so they have old souls both of yeah. them yeah that's true oh yeah you you just mentioned the solo album and there's a song uh my favorite song on that album is seeds of change the second is it the second one yeah the the reprise yeah, with yeah. the drums wait no no i'm talking about um um Oh. Yeah, that's that's seas of change. Yeah, it. I think it's two times on the record, right? It, yeah, it there's a reprise. Back. There's yeah. a reprise of it. Yeah. The first time it's just me. Second time there's drums. I see. And yeah. it fades in, and then I'm doing these chords and kind yeah. of. Yeah. I was wondering when does the song stop? You know, when does the written thing stop? It has these, this, this minor movement, okay. and then the I'll, A's. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you the lead sheet. Oh, man. Thank you. And then you can see what was written and what isn't. Yeah. I'm going to share it on the screen. Is that okay for you? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a funny little seven that 
you know, and that, that, you know, see, that's the, that's exactly what I was talking about with you yesterday. I didn't know what times I had to count it out myself after I played it. I didn't know what time signature it was. in. Yeah. And then I had to figure out, oh, there's a bar of six and then <laughs> two yes. bars of six. And then it goes into four and stops the first time. And then the second time it goes into that seven. Yeah. I'm not yeah. counting. I'm just going. Yeah. You know, little things. So that's what. And the other thing where it goes to the E. And then boom, ding, ding, ding. I, that's six four. It's free rhythm and it changes meter too. I'm yeah. not. I'm not. I'm not um, holding to that six four in that section. Mm -hmm. See, that was the moment where I was curious. Like, is this composed? Is this improvised? And it's exactly yeah. what we talked about yesterday: making something composed sound improvised. You know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Well done. <laughs> you did <Thank> it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then the see it's there. Yeah. So that that's an example of that. Let me, let me see. What's the other one you talked about? Oh yeah. Uh, I would. Uh, yeah. I, I'm curious about now how you wrote down wrote down the harmony, but um, under the under the melody before the, before it goes into the the B flat uh, minor blues. Yeah. Because that's also that was so interesting to me that it starts off with the F tonality, yeah. and then you kind of trick us yeah. uh, because everybody expects it to be in I don't know an F minor blues. Then you know, yes, yes. that's really cool. It's yeah, F I see it. Pedal. I think it goes to the C. So here, here we have it. Yeah, bar uh, yeah. right here at bar six. Yep. Yeah. It's kind of a C, like a five kind of thing. Interesting, yeah, because you play kind of a tonality. It, to me, it sounded like F minor major seven with a flat 13. Yeah, it is. But from C, from the... I mean, I think I do a pedal. Let me just see. Hold on a second. I haven't played it in a long time. Uh, yeah, when it goes. Yeah. It's like. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's. So it's like, it's actually. It's a C pedal there. Then back to F. Yeah. And it always throws people off because of the way the harmonic, the the way that it went, one, two, ba -da -ba -da -ba -ba -da -dee, that's yes. ba -dee, da -da. people get yes. screwed up with that. So it's like, you know, then it's yeah. 
but it and then then what then there's an f pedal on the b section you know that that uh yeah that and then sound. you double the melody yeah then it goes straight to b flat minor now when john schofield came to my house i was living in dobbs sorry before we moved to this house i remember sitting in this little room i was renting a floor we were renting a floor of a house we decided hey why don't we do originally we were going to go right to b flat minor and play and then each chorus was going to go up a fourth and we were going to go oh. around like crazy we didn't do that we stayed in b flat minor mm-hmm. but that's a way you could do the tune and it would sound really cool so that's that's, that's interesting that yeah that's cool like uh, um, just a quick question like uh, right now when you're when i heard you Uh, walk that um, that what you where you said that the C C pedal and then the, that tonality on top. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. There's something that is sometimes hard for bassists to realize to when they start out playing walking bass lines. Yeah. On how to maintain that feel of where the 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 strong yeah, yeah. beat is and yeah. where it isn't, and yes. it so, so goes together with a harmonic understanding. Yes. Um, Could you talk about that? Yeah, so like if you're playing that, you have to make sure that they know, like if you slowed it down. Yeah. Sometimes we did it uh, like uh, oh we did a two four bar yeah it is a two mm. four bar did a one two boom ah interesting yeah cool I think no no it's two bars yeah and I think you leave the F for a while and then you jump in on the third third bar yeah something but what i was actually referring to is like how do you ground uh, how 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 do you ground harmonically a bass line so it's clear where you where you hear it That's it's simple that. you play the root down low on the downbeat and you really <laughs> like mark yeah. it but see a lot of the students i always give them a hard time about that i said you guys are allergic to roots and downbeats yes you won't play them I got a lot of gigs in my life because I played the form and showed people the form so that it made it easier for them to improvise and stretch. Yeah. You know, the best compliment I ever got always was when people say, man, when you play, I hear the form. It makes it easy for me to play. There you go. That's our job <laughs> as bass players. And, and it's also fun. I like being the bottom and the foundation because that's when you see if you're prioritizing rhythm and sound... There's a lot more to playing that root down low than just playing the root down low. It's the sound. Mm -hmm. It's that, you know, like Garrison. Yes. 
I mean, I, I it took me years to realize how much Garrison affected me because I've been listening to so much Train. And at one point, I realized, wow, I really was influenced and stole a lot from Garrison in mm. terms of my accompaniment playing. Mm. Why wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. So, um, uh, to me, you seem like a very, very positive guy. Uh, and um, there's an energy and a, and a focus there when I see you play, when I talk to you. Um, and I'm wondering how and if you had to deal with self-doubt, like that hindering self-doubt, you know, that there's the... Hindering. Of course. Everybody goes like after a gig, ah, I didn't play well, but there's yeah, also yeah, the, yeah. the self-doubt of like, I can't play. I, I am, I'm too yeah. bad, you know. Yeah. Um, I've how had did it. You yeah Can, could you talk like, about it we we you know what they call the imposter syndrome where you mm -hmm. feel like i'm an imposter sure i i mean i have a very deep faith i'm uh, a christian but not a you know my brother's a pastor but not the right wing crazy people that are always on the news in the united states um so uh for me My faith is my grounding, and I've been committed to it since I was about 17. Mm. I really started studying the scriptures and really getting in there, and I've been involved in many churches. And, um, and uh, as a prayer minister, also as a deacon and an elder, I'm an elder now again, which mm -hmm. just means you're old. But uh, <laughs> no, but I mean, you know, being involved in serving people. Mm -hmm. um, and um, that's my grounding you know I, I realized that one of the hardest things in the world for people to do is accept love and spiritually the hardest thing even if you if you believe in God and you're committed to him and all that is to accept the love mm. that comes from God and the whole in my case the Holy Spirit God Jesus, all that. Um, and that's my grounding. That's what keeps me sane, too, because I realize that, you know, I can't do it in my own strength. Mm -hmm. It's not me. The, the talent, and this is what I believe. I'm not trying to push it on anybody. But the talent itself came from there. Mm -hmm. And the dna and the and the uh the family of origin and the particular personality that i have came from there my job was to develop what he gave me right that's a responsibility because mm -hmm. i've known i've seen some people in life who were given tremendous gifts who i thought way more talented than me on the base throw it away just not pursue it or not work hard and and so I feel like I've been given so much. I have a responsibility to develop it. Then, you know, but as as a human being, we become usually the drive that makes us want to become great at something. There's definitely insecurity in there as well. Mm -hmm. And then also what happens when you actually are successful and people, you know, expect you every time they hear you to be great. Yes. It's pressure. Yes. Sure it is. But 
the the thing is it's only pressure if you buy into the individualistic um society that has been forged especially in the united states where the individual is that's everything so people wall themselves off as individuals and there's no more community there's no more society because everybody's so separate and now we we get trapped into these things mm -hmm. the three pieces of glass that song that i wrote on the record was from a book that i wrote by a by a philosophical theological thinker who said the three pieces of glass that are partly responsible for a lot of good things in the world or part of the destruction of of emotional health in society are the computer screen the phone and the tv right that makes sense and so you know the way we thrive and the way we were made to thrive is in community that's why music is so beautiful that's why it changes people's lives it changes society and it is a force for good in this crazy world because it's born of community you can't have great improvised music without community exactly yeah you can't just be an individual yeah but what, what that's what, the problem what happens if you um if you uh, get insecure about your playing, about you as a person, you become that insular, that, that yes. single... Um, you isolate. Yes. And you're not part of the community. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm always... I do a lot of praying. Um, I do a lot of reading. Um, I know that if I'm not serving people and actively involved in community i can't grow as a person because mm. that's the way we grow only when we're close enough to someone for them to speak into our lives encouragement too not just criticism mm -hmm. but when you're vulnerable with other people they can speak into your life and say man you know i really love you and i you know this really helps me about you or you know and i that's part of my I think I was given a certain kind of calling and a gift to encourage people. Mm -hmm. So even though I'm older, like I'm at a church now where I'm older than the pastors, they're younger than I am. But I call them up because I know my brother's a pastor. And I know what it's like for him. Like, you know, you pour out to the people and you're always giving. But a lot of times people don't ever come up to the pastor and go, man, that was really beautiful. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Or thank you for that food pantry thing that you did last week. To feed all these poor people, they, they just sort of assume that you—that's your job. You're supposed to be, yeah. You're supposed to be doing that, but they don't encourage their the leader in the situation. So that's um, part of what I feel is important. That's maybe why I'm a teacher. Mm -hmm. I'm tough on my students, but I give them a lot of encouragement too. Yeah, because I'm trying to hold them to a higher standard so that they become all they 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 reach the potential that they have, mm -hmm. as opposed to having a wonderful gift and then throwing it away. But for some people, it's also hard to realize that they have a gift, you know? Yes. I mean, especially if they've been through a lot of criticism. See, I was, I went through a fair amount of criticism when I was growing up. My parents were children of immigrants, basically. So they, there was that push to achieve. Yeah. So we were, you know, we had to achieve. And, um, you know, my parents didn't get to go to college. 
So my mother was freaked out when I left college after three years. I bailed and went on the road. Yeah. Whoops. Because <laughs> <laughs> because I had a classical teacher who was saying, you got to stop all that stuff you're doing, jazz and all that, and leave that behind and become an orchestral bass player. Yeah. He didn't understand that I had only really been studying that for three years, and I'd been studying all this other music since I was 10. Mm-hmm. So at that point, I was like around 19 or 20, and he wanted me to throw it all away. Mm. And just and I love classical music. I play chamber music. I've played concertos with orchestras. I love it. But that's not all I love. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I couldn't throw away everything else. And so he was really mad at me. His name was Abe Luboff. He's been, he passed away a long time ago now, but I remember him saying, when are you going to get tired of playing in those upholstered saloons? Like he <laughs> knew that I was playing in jazz clubs, you know. But that's a deep he didn't thing. Dig like, it. It's a deep thing to defy expectations or to, to not, um, somebody's expecting something of you. Oh, yeah. And then not doing it, you know, that takes But I was and... stubborn. You know, I'm, uh, my, my bloodline is pretty intense. I mean, you know, my grandfather on my father's side, Uh, came to this country on a boat when he was 16. His father died when he was five, and he was sent to his uncle's farm in Calabria to work. Wow. <laughs> so by the time he was 16, he was like, I got to get out of here. There's no, there's nothing for me here. It, it was so poor. Mm. There was nothing there to do. He was just going to, there was no possibility to forge a life that yeah. made sense to him. So things have to be pretty bad for you to get on a boat, risk being sent back. Yeah, to a different continent. Yeah, so he went all the way, landed in New York, and then had to give somebody probably all the money he had to tell the officials that, oh, yeah, he's he's my family or whatever, you know, because yeah. otherwise they send you right back if you don't have some sort of liaison when you get there. So that's how he started his journey in New York. So my father was the youngest of 11, I think. Mm, And wow. so um, so we were tough, you know, stubborn people. So when my teacher was trying to tell me to give up jazz and all that other stuff, I had only known this guy, my teacher, for two years. I had studied with another teacher. My first classical teacher was Charles Ciani, an Italian master whose father was from the old country. His father played in the Philadelphia Orchestra, which is a big deal. And he did too a little bit. And then he wound up moving to the West Coast and he was the principal bass in the San Francisco Opera and associate principal of the symphony. So he was very intense too. But I was only with him for a year and then we moved away. So we never got to that confrontational part where they ask you to quit. Yeah. It didn't happen because we moved. He wanted me to stay, but I was too young to leave my the house yet. I was only, I was the youngest freshman at school. I was 17 in my freshman year of college until the end of the first semester. Right. Is that the stubbornness that you talked about? Is that something that you had to fight against within music also or is it something that you could also turn like wayne says turn poison into medicine you yeah know, because i think a, god did that there's yeah. a strength within stubbornness as well yes. 
But then there's the part where you get into trouble, and, and I did because I was stubborn. I um, The first time I got married, I was 24. Way too young. I was trying to outrun what I say. is I tried to outrun what God's plan was for me. Mm -hmm. I thought I knew better. Mm -hmm. I got married, and it was a terrible mistake, and it was oof, very bad. And it was... It really hurt me deeply. I was married almost 10 years because I believed I should stick it out and try to make it work. Mm -hmm. But my ex was um, not of the same mind. I see. Yeah. So, um, But the beautiful thing about that was that was even, you know, to use the Buddhist phrase poison into medicine, that desperation and utter, you know, I, I was really, that was a bad thing for me the first time out. And I was very naive, and I got hurt. So I thought after that I could never find somebody spiritually who would be on the same page and understand the crazy life of music mm -hmm. until I met my wife, Sachi. Mm -hmm. I had given up. I thought, I'm never going to find somebody who can deal with those both, who has all that. And there she was, you know, then she found me, kind of. Mm-hmm. And um, we've been married, it'll be 28 years in May, and we have two children and two daughters. Wow. It was amazing. But so that poison was turned into medicine also. Right. Exactly. God redeemed it. You know, he redeemed that pain and suffering. And it taught me a lot. I learned. And I was stubborn. I told God, I, not, I know what I'm doing. I got it. And I got it all right. <laughs> and I didn't get what I wanted. <laughs> so uh, that's where the stubbornness, that's where you, you know, the stubbornness is a strength when when redirected in the, in a positive yes. way. Yeah, yeah, if you find the right direction for it. Yeah, yeah. Your wife is also on a, on a couple of your records. She's and on I, quite a few, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I really She's love a them. great cellist. Yeah. Um, what always rings in my ear is that that cello part. I hope it's not a bass part, but the cello part on scenes of an opera, on remembrance. Oh yeah, that beautiful solo that I wrote for her. She that's, that's her, right? That's yeah. her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The one, those lines that happen. Yes. She's killing it, and then yes, the one. What I love is that Brian is bashing over the second one. It comes in that choir, that's basses and celli, yes. and then she's playing that, like she's killing it, and he's just bashing. I've never really heard that before. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Bashing it's kind drums of weird. And like, like super bashing soft drums instrument. and strings. Yeah. <laughs> yes, but I was wondering right. about the about the background, the celli and the bass background. Um, was it planned before that would, this would be added uh, later? Yes. Or, okay. yes. And actually, I cued it when we were playing, when we were recording. Right. It was already done, that part. Oh, okay. So you cued I, it to I the I knew technician. that I wanted it. I wanted it. I knew I wanted to use that in this piece. Somehow I thought of it beforehand. Yeah. And we recorded it. Uh, we recorded it... Um, separately you know and did it and then when we were in the improvisation with 
Brian and Joe, I cued the the uh, engineer and he played that. Great. So play to it. Yeah. But that Larry, Larry layering of uh, of low string sounds, that's something that I've heard a couple of times on records of you. Is this something that you've been yes. interested in? And even in the film that I scored in the pandemic, mm. I did some stuff like that. Uh, what's your process on that? Do you compose it on the piano or um, or sometimes I've I've done it that way. I think other times I just start building from the bottom and create different voicings that way. Um, it's fun to do that, mm -hmm. you know, and it's. Yeah, the first time I did it on a record, one of my records, it's on Sketchbook on a, rec on a tune called Two Worlds. Yes. Yeah. With Michael. Beautiful. It's like, just listen to it today. Yeah, these clusters. I, I've been getting in touch with all these old records lately because now that I'm putting up these reels for to show people my film composition uh, things, I edit them. I put them on Pro Tools and I edit them and I make reels. Like I have one for world music, one for strings, one for solo bass electrics, one for solo bass acoustic. Um, different things, you know. Mm. The, the the record that uh, one's called Chamber Jazz because it's stuff from, you know, the record One More Angel with Paul Motion and uh, Alan Pasqua and my wife oh, and my brother plays steel string guitar on that record. Beautiful. I love that album. How was it to play with Paul Motion? Incredible. I loved it. In fact, you know, before I did that record, um, my buddy Alan Pasqua, who's a brilliant pianist, what a touch. Mm -hmm. He had done some records for this Postcards label. And he had the Breckers and different people. And one of them, he had Jack, and the other one, he had Motion. And I said, man, what was it like? You know, he said, oh, man, it was amazing. He said... Because I said, I'm interested. I think I want to have him on this record. He said, okay, I'll give you some advice. Don't have him rehearse. He hates rehearsing. Yeah, I was okay. going to ask. No rehearsal. Yeah. Okay. And I, you know, and I had the music and I thought, you know, he would sound great on this music anyway. That's more of a, that's the first record I made when I came back to New York. So it had one thing from the older band, like with Steve Tavalloni and John Beasley, they do that piece I think it's called Beloved mm -hmm. which is they improvise that I mean I mean the melody is all written and the changes but they they take it and it's beautiful Steve Tavalloni is very Wayne-ish mm -hmm. saxophone player and he plays beautiful soprano on that and Beasley is very expansive and beautifully orchestral what he does so and there's some synth on it too and stuff anyway so I got Paul, you know, and I figured, okay, no rehearsal. We'll just go in there and I just got to have to trust that it's going to be great. And I mean, it's Paul Motion. But what was amazing about Paul was, you know, by then he was known for his free, free-ish ECM stuff. But, you know, he, he was solid as a rock with the Bill Evans trio. He was the time player in the band, like, I mean, for real. So even when we're playing freely on this record of mine, there's always this inner pulse that you he, he transmits to you, even if he's not playing all the subdivisions. You feel it. His time is so strong, but he sounds like he's floating. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. Exactly. Like that first tune, Quasimodo, on my record. 
mm-hmm. where it sounds like he's the drum solo. It sounds like he's falling down the stairs, and we're just playing an ostinato. It's incredible. I mean, I loved it. He even made some live gigs with me. Mm. When we when we promoted that record, we played some nights at Birdland, and he played same lineup. Yeah, I think Chris played. Chris Potter played, and my wife and my brother came out and played some guitar. Mm. But he wouldn't leave the island of Manhattan or Brooklyn. Mm. Um, he would. So when we went up to uh, Boston to play, I think uh, Billy Billy Hart played or somebody like that. Yeah. yeah. Also, great player. Incredible. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, John, if some somebody asks you to be part of his or her project. What do you expect? What do you expect from a band leader? I mean, I I I guess I hope for that they will, um, you know, think about who's playing, not just me, but who's playing in general, like, and write the music where there's room for those people to really contribute who they are. That's my biggest thing because I've played on so many recordings and the people who do that right get a great record every time. The people that don't do that, it never really, you can have all the greatest names in the world, but if you don't allow them to play and you have them in a straitjacket and you write very strict things all very planned out, and there's no room for them to breathe, you're really not getting who they are. I learned yeah. that early. Like when I, Chick had, I think I learned that from Chick too. You just choose players to play with who you already like the direction they're headed in. And then you give them the space to become a better version of that. Mm. In terms of if you're hiring younger players, obviously with older musicians, I was hiring a lot of incredible older musicians. I already knew the way they played. I was just, you know, giving them a big space to be in. And then, of course, they were comfortable and they played incredible. Mm -hmm. Incredible stuff. So that's that's what I try to do and that's what I hope for when I join somebody's project. Mm. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, and what do you expect from... If you hire somebody um, for to be a sub or somebody, you know? What do you expect from a sub? Well, I, I forgot one, to say one thing. The other thing I expect is clean and easy to read charts. Yeah. Because I've been in situations also where there was a lot of wasted time. Yeah. Me correcting the mistakes they made in their own music. Yeah. <laughs> like, do you really want, is that supposed to be that? Oh, no, I'm sorry. You know, like it's this, And that's okay, but if it's happening all the time on every tune, yeah, you lose hours of just... So I expect them to be prepared if they're going to hire... If they're going to come all the way to New York and play with me and Jack or somebody, you know, I expect them to be ready. Mm -hmm. You know, not trying to figure it out when they get here. Yeah. Only for their sake, because I, I really help a lot. I try to help a lot. A lot of the records I'm on, I'm sometimes almost, you know, acting in a producer role, helping, you know, trying to help them 
you know, helping them calm down if they're nervous. Yeah. I mean, I think it's part of bass playing. Mm-hmm. Bass player is usually the peacemaker. He should be, or she. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the way I look at it. So mm-hmm. yeah, and then, so if somebody stubs on my group, I, I expect them to be early. I expect them to be know the music. I expect them to be a team person. All that. Yeah. Those are basic professionalism kind of details. Yeah. Very important. Um, let's talk about, um, I've talked about this with Danilo as well and with some of the players who actually did it um, with you guys. So with the Wayne Shorter Quartet, there were instances when great people were subbing. You know, of course, Terry Lynn and Jorge, uh, yeah, Jonathan yeah, yeah. Pinson, and uh, and uh, of course, um, Jeffrey Kieser and, and uh, Jason Moran. People like that. Um, how did it feel for you in a tight organization like this and with this incredible, unique music with Wayne? How did the dynamic change for you? And how did you see maybe your role change and uh, your impressions of these moments? Yeah, we just tried to help. If it was Brian and I, we were trying to help the pianist. I would say Jeff Kieser came very prepared and did a real strong job of trying to, you know, just really... Um, it's not really a band where you can have subs at all. So that's all I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> Except yeah. for Jeff. But even still, I mean, you know, Danilo... His presence in that band is so huge. Yeah. Um, like I say, he's one of the two people who really have, in you know, really, really spent years inside Wayne's harmonic world. Yeah. You know, there are other people who have spent many years in Wayne's harmonic world, but they didn't get to play with Wayne. So it's different when you're in that mm -hmm. and it's happening around you and it changes your DNA over the years. It just realigns your whole life mm. playing that music. But I would say from my perspective in terms of being playing when somebody else came to play, the one person who actually made it work the best was Jeff Kieser. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Because, you know, that's the hardest chair to replace in this band. Because there's so much. I mean, it was. I think it was very difficult with the drums for me. Mm. You can't really tell somebody what to play. Oh, yeah, Brian and I always... <laughs> they're not going to... It's unfair. Yeah. Brian is so unique. You know... And you'd have to ask Danilo about the bass situations. There was a couple of yeah, them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we talked about I'm sure he about told you, but yeah. maybe he didn't, maybe. <laughs> no, I also talked about it with uh, Scott Collier. I talked about his uh, perspective on how it, you know, how it was. He did a very you good know. job. There's a record of that, even like. Uh, really? I mean, yes. Um, let me see. I mean, uh, a recording that somebody released? Do you know this one? 
No, that's a bootleg. Oh no, wait. This is this is Christian McBride, uh, and it's not with Scott Collier, I think. No, Scott I have, did I that week. I couldn't be there. Scott did the quartet. No, Scott did the stuff with the orchestra, and Christian did the quartet. Yeah, yeah. And then there was another time I think Bob Hurst subbed for me too. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And um, what I really what like these... his playing a lot. Oh yeah, he's he's incredible. I I want to talk more about uh, when you make records. I really like this the sequencing sequencing on the record. So so the track order and how that that story unfolds within uh, a record. Yeah, that's always pain painstaking. Like, how are we going to do this? You know, so, um, and often, if we get it right, it, it helps when I do live gigs. Sometimes I would use the same order for the for the gig. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't have a specific science. Like, um, people like Pat Metheny are famous for having, like, a real thought-out way to do it. Like, and Brecker used to tell me, if you ever have a problem with your sequencing of your record, just send it to Pat. He's really good. He'll fix it for you. You know, but I, I kind of like to do it myself. Yeah. Does it keep you up at night sometimes? Uh, not that bad, but it 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 is it happened to frustrating. Me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it happened to me. Just trying to go to sleep and thinking about, ah, but then this song and could lead yeah, yeah, into, yeah. you know. Just, I'm sure it's close to that for me, if I'm honest. I don't know that it kept me up at night, but it definitely drove me crazy. I'm going to have to go soon, though, because I have a, engineer coming over so i gotta get ready for that but um of course man i could talk to you like i said yesterday we could talk every day for you know weeks yes. and have a lot of fun but i wish i had more time for that but i i don't but um oh, you know who you knows? So stay in touch um yes and who knows maybe someday we'll play together oh man i i um i don't know what to say about that but this would be a dream come true for me you know yeah yeah i love your playing and it feels so Thank close you. because i have listened to you for so many times seen your life so many times um so you know what i i once played I, i played with john schofield you know and uh, oh, oh, he's he, one of my heroes he joined my trio and when i then got to play with him it felt so close because i had been playing yes. along to his records all the time so yes you know <laughs> do you know this feeling of getting oh, to yeah. play with your heroes and then Uh, it feels actually like you've been doing it for a long time. Well, that record now, mm -hmm. basically, I almost recreated his whole band. I just exactly. put me in it. It was Bill Stewart and him and I. I couldn't use Lovano. That would have been too much. So I used, you know, Michael and Chris yep. to make it different. But Could that have used Dennis Irwin, though. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I just listened. Wow, yeah, cool. Um, but uh, I love Dennis Irwin. He was a yeah. sweet, very yes. special human being, and great bass player. Um, yes. But yeah, that 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 was incredible for me because I had transcribed his solos, and I'm a huge Scohead. And, yeah. and and on one of my records, we did that tune Schofield. called Scofile. Scofile. Yeah, Scofile. exactly. Yeah. Great yeah, song. Great Bill song. Yes. Me. And also, yes. he played on that tune. They heard it twice. Yes, uh, beautiful, beautiful. Which even had a, had a, had even had a um, a title like his titles, and it came on the session because we were saying, "Oh, should we play 
the melody here again and i was like no nah, they already heard it twice and then we went wait a minute they heard it twice yeah so i love those keyboard voicings in uh, you know in the in the back john beasley Ooh. john beasley is an incredible very killing i mean he was part of my band for years yeah very deep like his intros are amazing mm -hmm. like there's a um there's a song called soul song on mr afina the re brazilian record with and it's Yvonne Linz is singing, you know, it's the one that goes, but it starts off with this like this amazing, like intro on the piano. It sounds like some sort of, I don't know, um, it's, it's like a, a, a fanfare, you know, like mm. he comes in playing this expansive thing, you know, he's a very underrated piano player. Mm beautiful i think yeah, he's great he's great i mean people know him of course they love him but in my band he he i mean there were many many nights where he just played insane intros and so i mean he's really great the other night i played with him we played i, I hadn't played with him in a long time on a on a live gig and he came to new york with his monkestra that mm, group right and it was the small band version with a like a four or five horns and then the trio mm. and we played and he did some intros again they were like incredible yeah yeah so yeah yeah he played some really cool voicings on that on the synth exactly and, and sounds also, yeah cool the, synth the sounds. sounds that he found and they really help the melody but they add something that is so interesting and so oh, i want to know more about these sounds you know so it's yeah, yeah, yeah. really really great but the song itself feels like you cr created the such su such a great playground for sco to be sco yeah yeah, yeah. well also on sco file exactly crazy kind of like those stabs i think they were they were that was john beasley and david with him who was mm. also like i told you yesterday he had studied with jackie byard he was like right. a great jazz piano player but also they got they both got into synths and i think they were very influenced by zavinul yes and all yes. that who wasn't Yep. He was still, to me, of all the guys that were, you know, that came out of Miles, he he forged another thing with the synths in a way that <coughs> was so personal. Yes. So warm and orchestral, too. Yes. Very special. It never sounded electric with him. It always no. sounded like natural. That's why Weather Report, Weather Report was so insane. So Yeah. Good. Anyway, I got to go. Of course. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> See you Man. tomorrow. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that would be funny if all yeah. of a sudden I, I open up my computer tomorrow and there you yeah. are. Wait a minute. How did you get in there? <laughs> all right, man. Uh, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much. See you again. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. <laughs>